Hello, and welcome to Disneyversity, the podcast crash course through the history of Disney's animated classics, where we talk about some of the most famous movies ever made that most of us probably don't know nearly as well as we think. Each episode, we'll be moving forward in time through the legendary Disney catalogue, watching every feature film in the Walt Disney Animation Studios vault, from Snow White to Strange World, seeing how they stand up today, how they pushed the boundaries of animation, shaped the legacy of Walt Disney and the wider Disney brand, and how they influenced pop culture at large. Disclaimer, this is not an official Disney podcast, but all of these films are available to stream now on Disney Plus, so come on, watch along with us, and let's learn together. I'm film journalist Ben Travis, and while I belong in a museum, I'm not your Disneyversity lecturer. No, for the third and final instalment in our bonus mini-series exploring Disney's centenary, I'm in line at the XL Centre in London, ready to enter the Disney 100 exhibition. If only I'd thought ahead enough to actually book a ticket. Thankfully though, I'm joined by somebody else who's much more on it than me, who not only booked the tickets, but picked them for the exact day that Disney marked the 100th anniversary. I am, of course, talking about Dr. Sam Summers, our guide through one of the most groundbreaking and beloved animated movie catalogues, of all time. Sam, that is a true story. You booked our tickets. I was like, I don't know when I can go. I might be on holiday. I don't know what's happening. You were like, don't worry. I've got the tickets. It's sorted. I said, I'm going on the 16th. If you don't come, somebody else will (laughs) at gunpoint if necessary. (laughs) Uh, But luckily you were able to make it. And I mean, look, we had a great time. There's no getting around that. It was a perfect place for a couple of guys like us to go and scream at some things. <laughs> so basically, the last episode was a list of things that we screamed at in the cartoon Once Upon a Studio, and this is a list of things that we screamed at in person in the Disney 100 exhibition. But we didn't even get that many weird looks because like, everyone's in the same boat. There were people in costumes, there were you know, quite a few kids there. It was a pretty fun vibe throughout the whole experience yeah yeah there was tons of stuff in the exhibition so if you haven't heard of this as part of the disney 100 celebration they have this exhibition that is at the moment in london it's here for a few weeks at least maybe a couple of months it has been in other places before here if i was prepared i would have looked up the other cities and places that it has been to i think it was in philadelphia for a while And so it's travelling about. It might be worth looking to see if it's coming to you at some point. And we're going to be talking about the various things that we, as Sam said, pointed at, screamed at, along with everybody else who turned out on the Disney 100 day. I don't know if you can consider, like, spoilers for things in an exhibition, Mm. but if you don't want to know what's in the exhibition, that is what we're going to be talking about. So you maybe want to hold off on listening to this either until you've seen it We're going to be sharing some initial thoughts early in the podcast, so maybe we'll give you a point where we just talk about our general feelings, and then we'll say if you don't want to know the more specific things in the exhibition, stop now, then come back once you've been. We are going to get later in the episode into the specific stuff that we saw and the stuff that was cool, and there was tons of it. So I guess to kick things off, 
what were your general feelings, Sam? What what were you hoping for going into this? And what were you pleased that this exhibition delivered on? I think it more or less met my expectations on almost every level. I was pretty excited going in. I just knew that I didn't read loads about it. I did want to go in kind of blind. But I knew that there was going to be a lot of like genuine artifacts from the history of the studio. I think what I was really surprised by was how legitimately they committed to this idea that it's like a hundred years of Disney. So one thing that I mentioned on our first anniversary episode was, I'm being genuine about this, I don't want to see any, for example, Marvel or Star Wars stuff before those companies were acquired by Disney. But the poster for this exhibition has a big Captain America shield on it, and I think a big BB-8 as well. So I'm thinking this is going to be quite Marvel and Star Wars heavy. And... You know, it's going to be more based around those things that they've acquired and there might be some older Marvel and Star Wars stuff in there, which, look, I love Marvel and Star Wars, so do you, but I was here for Disney and for those companies as a a, a part of Disney's more recent legacy. So, actually, if you're thinking of going to this on the basis of, I want to see loads of Marvel and Star Wars stuff, I would say temper your expectations, because there wasn't loads, and it was all from after those companies were acquired, So no, like, original trilogy stuff, no Phase 1 Marvel or, like, old-school Marvel Comics stuff. But that was was great for me. I think the focus was in the right place. There was the right amount. You know, there was bits from every era, bits from every branch of the studio's, you know, many tentacled octopus. I'm mixing metaphors. But, you know, (laughs) there was some park stuff, there was some TV stuff, there was some movie stuff, there was stuff from every decade that made really sure that that was going to be the case. And speaking of many tentacled octopus... There was some stuff from 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. You were thrilled. You were having the time of your life. Much like Once Upon a Studio, there were things where I'm like, this is here just for me. (laughs) And with Once Upon a Studio, obviously that's not the case. There's so many people who are going to be delighted by characters like Dodger and Orville. But in the Disney 100 exhibition, it's kind of verified that some of this stuff is just for me because nobody else was looking at it. (laughs) Yeah, there were definitely points in this exhibition where it was like, everybody is crowding around to look at the one thing because this thing is in the room and like, you want to go and see that. Which, obviously, we did as well. We did that. But then there'd be something else over in the corner of the room that we went and just stood by and had a big look together. We were like, wow, look at this thing. Nobody else was there. Nobody was troubling us. We didn't, you know, that feeling when someone's behind you and you're like, oh, I need to, like, show that I'm still reading the card and the information or I'm still just having a proper look. But I'm I'm giving signals to say I'm aware you're behind me and you can have a look in just a second, but I'm still just having a look for the moment. Didn't even have to think about that because there was stuff that it felt like was there pretty much just for us. So I think it certainly does the job in terms of offering a lot of different kinds of artifact as well. Like there's there's all sorts of different stuff here. There's some sheet music, there's props and models from live action films, there's artwork from all stages of the animation production process, there's pencils, there's cells, there's storyboards, there's concept art, there's everything you could want. I would say that it's obviously, and you would be a fool to expect anything else, but it's obviously a fairly sanitised, straight-down-the-line version of this story. There's nothing there about Song of the South. There's nothing there about Walt's testimony before the House on American Activities Committee or, or anything like that, anything that's even remotely controversial. There's not like the animators' strike as well, those things that are kind of right. interesting periods in the studio's history, but that don't really fit with the cosy 
brand that Disney creates for itself. I mean, the animated strike is a huge moment. If you look up the images of it, it's really amazing just to see the artwork that they created for their signs and stuff because they're all really talented people and they incorporated Disney characters into their protest signs. And it would be great to see some of those in the museum. I bet there's some kicking around. But yeah, it, it papers over all of those controversial cracks. But like, look, that is just a symptom of what Disney is. And it is... I think a very sad and unfortunate fact that so much of Disney's history and the way that Disney's history is presented is controlled directly by Disney. So there are lots of amazing independent books written about Disney history. So many. I know people who've written them. But the kinds of books where they have lots of great big lavish images of the parks or the artwork or whatever, they're officially sanctioned by Disney and they say what Disney want them to say. There aren't many documentaries about Disney other than the official making of documentaries for the films and other stuff that they've commissioned themselves and there aren't many exhibitions apart from the the Walt Disney Family Museum in California which is owned by Walt's family not by the company that they present a bit more of a comprehensive view because they're independent from Disney itself. But other than that, there's not many exhibitions or other opportunities to engage with a version of Disney history with this level of like access to the images and the artifacts and everything that hasn't been put through the Disney machine itself. So just be aware that that's what you're getting going in, but I can't imagine you weren't already aware of that. Yeah, as much as it's Disney's history presented by Disney, it has loads of access to the history of Disney. You know, the bits that they want to show you, they are going to show you some really impressive things. I was in a similar position to you of, I would say if you're on the fence, if you like this podcast and you like the stuff that we talk about and you're on the fence of whether you want to go to this or not, I would recommend going. We paid for our tickets. We, you know, have not been endorsed for, for this. I thought the exhibition was really good and we were in there for at least two hours looking around stuff because there was tons to see. It had more in there than I thought there would be. And like you, having seen the poster, having seen the live action Cinderella slipper and BB-8 and uh, yeah, Captain America shield, I was like, oh, I hope this still feels like a Disney exhibition and not just a like everything Disney owns exhibition. And it really did skew to a lot of the stuff that we've talked about all the classic films some really impressive artifacts and as you say sam yeah a huge range of stuff like it helps that everything disney makes is in a very visual medium and you have production artifacts but you have props but you have like they have various bits of video playing they have so many different ways that they can show you things from across this hundred years of history and even though, yes, it is the sanitized version of that, you know, there are some deep pulls in there. There are some big favorites. There are the classics that you might be expecting. But we obviously were delighting in going around and being like, oh my God, there's the three caballeros. Yes. There is a lot of that stuff that if you've listened to this podcast from the beginning, if you followed us, even through some of the more obscure films, there are things that will delight you in this exhibition. I was really impressed with it. I was looking forward to going, but I didn't really, you know, my expectations were relatively moderate. And I was really impressed and surprised by some of the deep cuts, some of the big bangers where it's like, wow, that is here. This is that. That is nuts. Yeah. Great time. Couple of hours spent in there. Maybe it was because it's only just opened and it was the Disney 100 day 
got a little bit cramped at points. Yeah. It's busy, and there's, you know, a lot of the artifacts are quite small. People are huddled round to look at relatively small things, and we kind of hung around at the back thinking, I will happily wait, just let everybody go ahead, and then we can take our time to look at stuff. But maybe that will ease up once the exhibition's been open for a while and the initial influx of people have come through, but there were points where we either waited quite a long time to see something or it was like I really just have to take my moment to like look at this conscious that there is a large group of people behind me also waiting to see the same thing. It was pretty busy, but it was Disney 100 day. It's been open for literally a couple of days. Uh, so yeah, maybe expect that when you go to the exhibition. Yeah, I would say genuinely, if you are somebody who doesn't do well with tight crowds or tight spaces, try and go at a time when you think there's going to be fewer people there, like if you can make it during the day, on a weekday, or, you know, just look at when fewer tickets have been booked if you're going on a weekend or on an evening, because especially the first, like, section of this, it was really, it was a tight corridor, it was like a bottleneck, and once you get out of that, it's a little bit more open. There is kind of, like, a set path that you're encouraged to follow so that you see everything, but after the first room the spaces are a lot more open and you can breathe a bit more. So I just just be aware of that if that's something that concerns you, try and time yourself so that you're not going to be swept up in it. I would certainly recommend it. I mean, there's a scream around every corner. We had an amazing time. <laughs> and again, there's, there, there is stuff there for big nerds like me, moderate nerds like you and like just people with kids as well like there's activities for the kids to do and stuff like that i'm not a kid so i can't speak to how entertaining and they <laughs> actually are it's a it's a bit of a step above your usual like museum activities for kids i would say when it comes to the drawings like the actual artwork about half of them were like reproductions so about half of them were like genuine original the nine-year-old men touched this with their bare hands mary blair actually held this object and others were like reproductions which were impressive i actually don't even know what the technical definition of a reproduction is because there weren't like photocopies i don't know if they're being like traced or if it was just like a sophisticated kind of laser print and process or something but they looked really cool you kind of forget that the reproductions when you're looking at them and it's just fun to see this kind of artwork but if you're expecting everything you see to be the original i would say when it comes to the artifacts the physical stuff nearly all of it was but the drawings the paintings about half of them are reproductions so just temper your expectations for that more of those were real originals than i thought there maybe would be more of that yeah. was kind of original stuff where it's like and some of the as you say some of the originals they do have it's like wow that is crazy that they have this that i'm seeing this right now so I'd say that wraps us up on our general spoiler-free, if there's spoilers for this thing, spoiler-free thoughts. If you don't want to know anything more about the exhibition from here, this is your cue. Now we're getting into specifics. Sam, straight in. What was the best thing you saw in the exhibition? What's the thing that blew your mind? Oh my god. For some reason, and it's not my favourite movie... It's an incredible movie, but it's not like one that's really, really close to me personally. But the the object that was like, my word, this is in front of me right now. I could hop on this and ride it if I wanted to get arrested was <laughs> the actual carousel horse that Dick Van Dyke rides in Mary Poppins. Like that just feels like such a historical object. And it is, it's the one and it's like scritched and scratched. There's an episode of that documentary on Disney Plus called Prop Culture, 
what that is about Mary Poppins, and I think they've got the same one in that, and it's like, wow, that is legitimately incredible. Yeah, that was amazing. And it's it's in London, Sam. That's where the film is. Of course. As you walk past the carousel horse, you have to do you have to do a little ooh, a little Dick Van Dyke voice as you greet the horse. That I mean they don't make you do that. I just think it's appropriate that you do that. I think my number two was probably they have an actual to be fair, I don't even know how old this is. This might only be a few years old. But they had a car from Mr. Toad's Wild Ride from Disneyland, California, which I've never been to. Hopefully I will one day, but that is obviously like a dream bucket list Disney ride for me to go on is Mr. Toad's Wild Ride and I had a car there and again I could have hijacked it if I wanted to but instead I just pointed (laughs) at it and I'm looking at a photo now made a face that I didn't know I was capable of making. Your soul was ascending from your body as you were next to the Toad car which says Toady on the front. That is great and uh, we didn't mention that in the non-spoilery bit but they have yeah parks stuff it covers various bits of the disney legacy so if you're also a disney theme parks nerd more than anything else it's not like hugely theme park heavy but there is a whole section at the end that is all parks stuff which is very very cool for me the thing that instantly pops into my head is they have the actual prop book from the start of cinderella like the fairy tale books that begin those classic princess movies they have some of the actual books the most impressive one for me was the cinderella book you can see the mice and the birds kind of carved into the front it is the actual one that is incredible they also have a snow white book but weirdly i don't know why it's the dutch snow white book so that sparked a conversation for us of like oh i guess they must have done different language books when they release the film in different countries so i don't know where the english language snow white and the seven dwarfs book is but they had the dutch version which i don't even know if i'm going to try and mangle some dutch right now maybe i'm not brave enough for that but they have uh, let's give it a go snow and the seven dwergen nailed it i apologize to anybody who even vaguely knows a dutch person Uh, i can smell the tulips (laughs) i can taste the stroop waffles absolutely delicious stroop waffles love them didn't have them at the exhibition but they do have them everywhere in the netherlands so i don't know i mean how do we go through this because this exhibition was organized like thematically that's another kind of note it's not organized chronologically it starts with the start it starts with alice and oswald and steamboat willie and that contract that famous contract i mean that's it's all of the old stuff that really impresses me and yeah the exhibition starts with that on the disney 100 date we saw the contract that we talked about in the first episode of this mini series and just knowing the Yes, it is a contract. That's not very exciting. But knowing the significance of that, it was really cool to see it. And just seeing all of the really old, early classic Disney stuff was amazing. They have bits of original Oswald concept art that is not reproduction. Oswald the Lucky Rabbit in Sleigh Bells. I'm looking at my photo of it now. There's original Oswald art. They have Oswald cartoons playing on the walls. They have an actual story script page from Steamboat Willie, including an early sketched version of Pete (laughs) pointing at Mickey Mouse on Steamboat Willie. That is amazing. It, It kicks off with all of the pretty much 100 years ago stuff. 
And being there on the actual Disney 100 day was like, oh, this is this is amazing. They also had a script for Steamboat Willie, which I was obviously reading very carefully because I wanted to find out, do they name Pete as Pete? Because we talked a couple <laughs> of episodes ago, Pete appeared in the Alice comedies in which he's called Pete in the intertitles. But actually, the version of Pete that we get in the, the Mickey Mouse short, I don't think was named as Pete and therefore confirmed to be a version of the same character for a while. And in the script, he's not called Pete, he's called the Angry Cat Captain. But we do get the incredible piece of direction in this script, which is Mickey dodges and falls down steps when the captain misses his foot travels on over his head and he kicks self in Fanny. Yes, <laughs> that is comedy. By which they mean but. Yes, this is American. They mean the bum. <laughs> so you get this first room, which is the tight corridor room where you see all the really old stuff. And then it opens up into not chronological, but like themed rooms. So there's Where Do Stories Come From, which is about adaptations and the way that things like Alice in Wonderland and Winnie the Pooh and Snow White were adapted from the original stories. They've got a big stack of books that all of the Disney films were adapted from. So there is a particularly impressive to me stack, which has Big Hero 6 right at the top, the graphic novel, the Marvel comic book. Then we've got The Rescuers, Mary Poppins, Pinocchio, The House at Pooh Corner, The Princess Diaries, and 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I mean, what a, what a collection that is. Funnily enough, you have that exact stack of books by your bedside. Crazy. <laughs> Apart from the Princess Diaries, I confess I have not read, but maybe I should. <laughs> have you read, Sam, Snoowitcher <laughs> and the Seven Dwargen? <laughs> I highly recommend it. And speaking of Snow White, in that gallery as well, this is one of the most impressive things. They had the outfit worn by the actress who recorded the live-action reference footage for Snow White. So it's a really old, worn version of the Snow White, I don't know what you call it, you know, ladies' clothes, the the chest piece, the top bit, where it's got the puffy shoulders. A blouse? Is it technically a blouse of some kind? I don't know if it's a blouse. It might be a bodice. This is why we need more women on this podcast. Is it a shacket? Was that a more modern invention? (laughs) They've got Snow White's official shacket from the live-action reference footage. Truly incredible. Speaking of reference stuff, they had a freaky little cuckoo clock from Pinocchio of the woman smacking the boy's bum, which, again, they made real props so that they could then use it as reference footage for the animation. So there's tons of stuff like that. The stuff that blew my mind in this room, Sam, was, as you've kind of teed up already, original Mary Blair art. We have original Mary Blair Cinderella castle art, which is just mind-blowing to see. We have original Mary Blair... Alice in Wonderland art of Alice being chased by uh, one of the playing card guys. I can't remember. It's a long time since we watched that film. The, the playing card guys don't have individual names, Ben. It's okay, okay. If you can't remember what he's called. It's a playing card guy. And it's like, we've talked so much about Mary Blair's art style, how influential she was on those films. And to see actual original work that she drew, to see Alice looking visually like a character from It's a Small World... Those were the things where it's like, I just want to stay looking at this for like minutes before we move on. There's also fittingly a little poo corner 
There's a cell set up from the original Winnie the Pooh and the Honey Tree short. And I will say cell setups are always really cool to look at because you can see exactly how each shot was constructed. So it can sometimes be surprising what is on a cell and what's on the background. And in this Winnie the Pooh one, you've got obviously it's the scene where Pooh is poking out of Rabbit's house needing to be rescued. And Pooh obviously is on a cell. He's not painted on the background, of course. The sign, the words Rabbit's House on the sign are also on a cell, which maybe that's similar to the the Dutch Snow White book. Is that possibly because they wanted to change it for different languages? So that was kind of fascinating. And then also the fire, there's a, a campfire burning outside and the fire obviously is on a cell too. But it really gives you a sense of how these shots were constructed when you see the actual cell setup itself. And you can see that they're Xeroxed. You can see that process in the cell as well so that kind of thing is really cool like actual animation cells are part of the things that you're going to see going around the exhibition but while we're on the poo front uh, ah there was a moment where i had to turn to sam i was slightly ahead of him and i said we're going to turn this corner and you're going to be confronted with something that you're just going to need to take a breath you're just going to need to steal yourself and no it is not animated but it is the actual reference bear the Pooh Bear that they used for the Christopher Robin movie that made Sam lose at least 50% of his body water out of his eyeballs in the cinema. They had the actual Pooh Bear, and you, you spent a good little bit of time looking at the Pooh Bear. I mean, it's not that it's a really old object and artifact from like one of my favourite movies of all time or anything, but it's... He just looks so sad. I mean, that's the point of the movie. That's why I was crying. But it's an old threadbare poo just looking with uncertainty at the ground because Christopher Robbins left them all alone. And I'm I'm genuinely tearing up because Christopher Robbins (laughs) left them all alone in the Hundred Acre Woods. And I just got to sit and stare at him and contemplate loss for a bit. Yeah, you had to look at Pooh Bear and then had to say, Sam, now is the time that we have to leave Pooh Bear behind and continue in the exhibition. There are more things to see. There's an actual cell. Look, come over here. There's an actual <laughs> cell of Cruella Deville. That's cool, isn't it? That's nice. Yeah, it was an emotional moment. Okay, so let's talk about the next bit of the exhibition, which was the spirit of adventure and discovery. This had a mix of classic Disney stuff and... Some of your Star Wars and Marvel stuff was here as well. So this is a room that's exciting for anybody who's more invested in that kind of thing. But there was still some, you know, classic Disney bits. There's a little bit of Peter Pan early on. You were thrilled because even though we literally went on the Nautilus at Disneyland Paris, you'll hear all about that at some point. They had a Nautilus iris set up. You got to pull a little lever. Of course, we made a pull the lever joke when you pulled the lever. So there's a little bit of like the 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea stuff in there. There is also one of the things that you and I like lost our minds over, you in particular, that nobody else cared about, was a model of a blimp. Please, as briefly as you can, explain the blimp, Sam. So the blimp... This is like a relatively new obsession for me. It was when, and we will recall a podcast episode about this in due course, we were in Disneyland Paris, in Discoveryland, which is like this Jules Verne-inspired, more Eurocentric version of the classic Disneyland Tomorrowland area. And one of the most striking buildings is this enormous building called the Hyperion Café, which has currently got a Star Wars-themed bar in it where you can buy a BB-8 burger. 
and a big screen that plays Mickey Mouse cartoons. And there's a long history of that, which I don't even know if we'll have time to get into on the actual Disneyland Paris episode <laughs> about what it used to be. But it's called the Hyperion Cafe, and there is a enormous steampunk blimp stationed outside of it, which is apparently one of the biggest props ever constructed for a theme park. So I'm thinking, is this a generic blimp, or is this a blimp from a movie? And it turns out it's from a live-action Disney movie that even I hadn't seen yet, but it was on my radar, called The Island at the Top of the World, where some characters fly to the North Pole in a giant steampunk blimp called the Hyperion, and uh, the fighting army of Vikings there. It's pretty good. It's, it's reasonably entertaining. It's got some fun central performances, but they have the actual model used in the film of the Hyperion blimp from the island at the top of the world, which a couple of months ago I didn't really know existed and is now one of my favourite things in a Disney movie. And we just <laughs> got to go and have a little look at it because everyone else was looking at Star Wars stuff. Not a single other person was looking at the blimp. Just to say, if we ever end up starting a band, we're calling it Steampunk Blimp. That is non-negotiable. <laughs> yeah, and nobody cared about this because right next to that they had... As you say, Star Wars stuff. We go from the ocean up to the air, into space, off to Star Wars, which is all Disney-produced Star Wars. I'm not going to dwell on this, but I was thrilled because there was loads of Last Jedi stuff there. They specifically had a Porg, and I could tell just from looking at this specific Porg which scene he is in in The Last Jedi. They had the original Jedi text, the sacred Jedi text. Uh, I was quoting Yoda to you as we went past, and you were like, oh, Ben, I'm glad you're having a nice time, which is basically what I was saying to you when you were by the blimp. We, we each had a moment there. They also had Han Solo's famous dice. That's kind of a thing. They're in The Last Jedi, Sam, therefore they are extremely important. The thing, again, that captured us, though, was that opposite the Star Wars stuff was some oldie-timey Mars space art that I was like, I kind of think I've seen this before. And where I'd seen it was on your thread on our Twitter feed of a hundred Disney productions for a hundred years. Tell me about the space art. Well, first of all, I'm going to tell you about the thread because it's, it's, it's one of my favourite things I've ever produced. And it's on our Twitter feed. You can find it by scrolling down a couple of tweets, I guess. And it's one film for every year that the Disney company has existed. And for 1957, it was from the space documentary Mars and Beyond, directed by Ward Kimball, originally as part of the Disneyland TV show, but it was aired in cinemas as well. This was part of a series of documentaries themed around Tomorrowland, because everything on the Disneyland show was themed around an area of the theme park. Basically, there was Man in Space, Man on the Moon, and Mars and Beyond. And the idea was to bring in scientists and artists to help hype up the American public for the idea of space travel. And the Mars and Beyond episode in particular is incredible. There's loads of different art styles, some amazing, both fun cartoony and also weird experimental animation used to imagine what life on Mars might be like. And they have the exact painting that I used to illustrate this in my Twitter thread. So that was another thing. No one else was looking at it. They were all looking at BB-8. And we went over and just had a good old look and a chat about this this Mars film. And I got to tell Ben all about it. You did. And that was lovely. And then after that, we did go back to BB-8 and we took a photo with BB-8. Hello to Brian Herring, if you're listening. We had BB-8 on this podcast talking about the Muppet Christmas Carol. Go back and find that. It's like a year ago in our feed. So, 
from there, let's talk about the music stuff, because there was a whole music section called The Magic of Sound and Music, and you were thrilled because the artwork for that referenced the oft-mentioned on this podcast Toot, Whistle, Plunk, and Boom, and they had some really cool stuff here. They, Because it's tying into musicals, they had Giselle's Dress from Enchanted, and they had loads of sheet music, including like original sheet music from Snow White. This is where we also saw some Three Caballeros sketches, and you were most excited, Sam, to see original sheet music of what we think of as just a pop cultural staple, which is that pirates sing Yo-Ho, Yo-Ho, A Pirate's Life For Me. That is a Disney construction. We saw that actual sheet music for Yo-Ho. I mean, that's pretty incredible, isn't it? That Some people probably think that song is like 100, 200 years old because it's just the pirate song and it just feels so right. It feels so oldie-timey. It's like it's always been here. But that was written for the Pirates of the Caribbean ride at Disney by George Bruns and Xavier Atencio, who were both like longtime Disney staples and worked on a lot of the films as well. And like that just feels like not just a piece of Disney history, but like world music history. It's the pirate song. Yeah, there we go. We saw the real thing composed by George Bruns. Uh, this is the other thing, is that not every single piece in the exhibition credits a specific artist but a good amount of them do. They've done a good job of like crediting specific people if they know the person who kind of did that work, which I think is valuable to do in the way that we often talk about. You don't want to attribute everything to Walt. You want to attribute the actual artist that did these things, and to a fair extent, they do that as much as they can through the exhibition. So yeah, we had this music section. Following that, there was a section called The World Around Us, which was teeing up kind of nature and different countries around the globe so this is where we get bits of like original bambi art that blew my mind we also see a little bit more mary blair here there is original mary blair three caballeros art if you've listened to this podcast you know why we found that incredible and could not stop looking at it that stuff is so cool but the thing that really blew us away was in the next room called Innoventions, where they have loads of the tech behind this stuff. And obviously a lot of what we talk about is the tech, is the technological innovations. This is where we saw the multiplane camera. We briefly mentioned it on the previous episode, but they had an actual multiplane camera setup with a shot that Sam had been talking about that very morning in his lecture to his students and you can have a really close-up look. They've separated all of the planes out so that you can see the different levels of the shots. I, on my phone, was, like, just taking a bit of video of what was in there, and even just moving your phone towards the multiplane camera, you can, like, move through the shot. It was incredibly cool. There is an actual multiplane camera. There is an actual original Pixar image computer. There is some nerdy stuff that we loved on a tech level. It's the multiplane camera that Walt Disney used to demonstrate what the multiplane camera was in the 1950s on an episode of Disneyland. And I still use that clip to just easily explain to my students how it worked. And in terms of the Pixar computer, obviously that was a really cool thing to see. I think that's the only thing in the exhibition that was not made by Disney. That was obviously made by Pixar long before they were acquired by Disney. So that kind of... I nearly just, like, broke the case and then chucked it out the window. But <laughs> I, I'll let that slide because that was pretty fun to see. 
from there we get into the park stuff and they have lots of old animatronics from the park original like 1930s very creepy mickey mouse doll if you love the park stuff if you love the art of the parks if you love the ride vehicles tons of that stuff you should go and check that out and then the exhibition kind of ends on a bit of a hodgepodge room that would feel a bit weird for that to be the end of the exhibition if the hodgepodge didn't include some incredible hodge and some incredible podge so there are things like the sword in the stone another original book which obviously sam and i booed at loudly when we saw it (laughs) but they have the it's kind of grouping bits of props and physical items by decades so there was a sword in the stone book if you like lost like me because it's abc they had a cabinet of dharma initiative items they've got the bed knob from bed knobs and broomsticks I know that's very The Kane from Citizen Kane. <laughs> but that's another one where it's like, it's a movie that I watched loads when I was a kid. It's not one that I hold really close to my heart now, even though it is great. But it's the bed knob from Bed Knobs and Broomsticks. The kid turned it with his hand, man. There was a woman there in the kind of line before us who was just crouched looking at the bed knob for about five minutes and she could not believe her eyes and that just like summed up the whole experience for me everyone's gonna have something like that in one of these rooms that's like man i'm in the same room as this and they had the book the isle of naboomboo from the film as well bruce forsyth nearly killed some kids for that book that's how valuable that is (laughs) in the movie i'm not gonna lie i was getting a little bit impatient waiting to see the bed knob because that woman was looking at the bed knob for a long time. I was like, I know it's the original bed knob from Bed Knobs and Broomsticks, but I would also quite like to see the bed knob <laughs> at some point. The thing you were most thrilled about in that room was a cabinet of home improvement items, a big hammer that Tim Allen used. <laughs> it's a tandem hammer that Tim Allen and Richard Kahn used together as part of Tim's tool time on Home Improvement, the sitcom about Tim Allen playing Tim the Toolman Taylor. The tool man. Home Improvement. And it, at the time, one of the biggest sitcoms on TV. Like, Tim Allen is a huge star because of Home Improvement. I mean, he's not a huge star anymore, but he was, and that's why. So they had this hammer that had a couple of screwdrivers. I don't know if I'm describing the hammer well enough. It's a hammer, and then on top of the hammer head, there's another handle. So that two guys can hold it at the same time. Look, I've got a thing about Home Improvement. I don't know why. It's hard to explain. It just feels so 90s. And I just, I went over and I had a good look and I bowed my head and I just did a solemn, respectful... You made that noise several times and never explained what it meant. I just, (laughs) at that point, I was like... Okay, uh, we've been in here for hours now. I kind of need to leave. (laughs) Sam's lost his mind. It's the noise that Tim Allen makes in Home Improvement. If you Google Tim Allen Home Improvement Grunt Compilation, and there's like long compilations of Tim Allen, he goes, and he goes, oh, that's awful. Oh, I'm not into that. The Home Improvement theme song ends, like every single episode, the theme song ends with a big, (laughs) that's genuinely the last photo in my phone of any exhibit we saw it's like here's some mary blair here is the carousel horse from mary poppins here's the original cinderella book here is a toad of toad hall car oh and just before you leave here's the hammer from home improvement end of exhibition job well done everybody (laughs) oh we did have a good time 
And that is the end of our Disney 100 Celebration miniseries. We hope you've enjoyed this flurry of bonus podcasts to mark a significant milestone in Disney's history. Do let us know on Twitter and Instagram your thoughts on Once Upon a Studio when you've had a chance to watch it. We'd love to know what you think of that. And if you make it to the Disney 100 exhibition, absolutely tag us. Tell us what you think. We'd be really keen to know if you enjoyed it as much as we did. So, this has been our little mini-series. I am off on holiday, so I'm going to be away for a little bit. But once I am back, regular class will resume with Atlantis, The Lost Empire. I'm sorry, I know it's been a long time coming, but we will get to the lost city of Atlantis, once I return from my travels. It's going to be with you mid-November. So we promise it'll be worth the wait, and we hope these bonus specials have helped to tide you over. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed this mini-episode, and indeed this mini-series, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you fancy dropping us a little review, Sam will come over to your house and he'll fix up any DIY problem you want with the double-handled Tim Allen home improvement hammer. Any job, he'll do it. Just by definition, we need to do that together. You need to be there as well. Oh, whatever day that is, I'm I'm busy, man. I can't do it. I'm sorry. (laughs) For now, it's goodbye from Sam. (laughs) And it's goodbye from me. Oh, that is terrible when somebody else does it. (laughs) Told you. Stop doing it in public. Disneyversity is brought to you by Ben Travis and Sam Summers. Our artwork is by Ollie Gibbs and our music is by Nefetz. Follow us at Disneyversity on Twitter and Instagram and catch you for next week's class. (laughs) 